Okay. Welcome to Objection to the Rule, live on Radio Free Brooklyn. Happy Sunday. My name is Teresa, and I am here with my co-host, Emily, Jasmine, and Matt. What's up, guys? Hey, what's up? Hello. How's everybody doing? Hanging in there. Yeah, things are reopening in New York very tentatively. Strange. I know. And they've increased the travel ban. It's like almost all yeah. 50 states can't come here. <laughs> it's, it's, crazy. Like 30, it's like 31 or something. It is crazy. But we're doing okay. Wow. Like, re- like, obviously, relatively. But like... Yeah, yeah. You know, absolutely. even with the reopenings, the numbers really haven't spiked a ton. So, I don't know. Yeah. Cost, cost has exactly. anyone done a uh, a reopening thing or has anyone like gone into a business they haven't been to for three months or any yeah i got my i got my nails done the other day and yeah. that was the first and i'm going to work next week for two Whoa. days well, i know i'm not looking forward to it yeah. like, <laughs> You're gonna take the subway. like yeah i'm gonna take yeah. the subway yeah i mean right now it's just going in on um two days a week and it's it's very very tailored to how many people will be on campus Mm -hmm. um only going for lab classes so people can finish their programs Mm -hmm. um but yeah i'm just there for support you know and hopefully yeah things will go well i'll be safe i'm taking my vitamin c and echinacea yeah i'm very i'm still staying and i haven't been out unless i have to get groceries i still go out for like a walk every once in a while just to get some fresh air Um, i go back to work next month so Mm -hmm. that'll be i don't know like i'm just hoping that there aren't a lot of like aggressive people or people that you know are in the mood to fight Because I I feel like sometimes there's a lot of that, like whenever there is some kind of a shutdown, like some of the people that still choose to go out are not always the most, I don't know, considerate. So right with masks. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm asking them to wear one and then they want to lash out at the workers like it's scary time. It is. It's very strange. Yeah. And I'm I'm was in the restaurant industry. Right. And I've I guess I. I'm on hold until they, until indoor dining is allowed. And I was really grateful. I was really, really happy that they delayed that since it was like so clearly a, a super spreader, spreader situation in the rest of the country. Like they were like two days away yeah. from, I was like two days away from potentially having to go back, you know, I mean, being in a situation where I'd have to go back to work soon. And I was, you know, in a very pretty dangerous situation, but yeah, I'm, I'm still on hold at the moment. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll yeah. put on hold people yeah. in, in the mood for fights. Like I, I think those two statements encapsulates the uh, the strange dichotomy of of the nation under the yeah. pandemic. <laughs> strange times. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, speaking of strange times, let's get into some news. Uh, Matt, you're up with national news this week. Uh, local. Oh, local news but, this week, Lauren. Yeah, it's fitting because I think, you know, New Yorkers feel like the local is the national news, you know. Um, uh, You were talking about subways earlier, if you're going to take it to go to work for the first time in a long time next week. And this piece is about the subway, uh, the MTA in general. Uh, I haven't ridden the train in three months, maybe longer. I, I can't didn't actually count it. 
I bike to work, and as long as it's not raining on my way there, I don't take the train. Um, but if it's raining on the way back, you know, doesn't matter because I'm just going home. Side note, I was wondering why I've gotten rained on on the way back, but I haven't gotten rained on on the way to work. And according to this one blog by this meteorologist, he says, or they say, I don't know the gender, uh, quote, for the eastern U.S., precipitation is most frequent between noon and 6 p.m., end quote, which would explain why I get rained on on the way back. Um, it's, it's a very complicated thing, though. It has to do with some weird term like called like diurination, <laughs> which sounds like that other word. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> ridership is down for the MTA. How down from the Gothamist, quote, bus and subway ridership this week stands at 1,230,999 riders, a decrease of more than 77% compared to this time in 2019, end quote. The numbers are staggering. The title of this article references a loss of $200 million each week to offset that the MTA and just about every program from composting to the cops have made big cuts, which makes me wonder about that billion dollars that the police were bragging about cutting as um, if it was a response to the protests when everyone has to make cuts anyway because there's been such a loss of revenue. And anyway, the MTA cut $340 million from its budget in attrition and consulting contracts, the transit agency says it needs $3.9 billion to provide acceptable levels of service for the rest of 2020 and another $6.1 billion in, two in, 2000 in 2021, as well as billions more in the years to come. So they're making a lot of cuts. One cut I thought was interesting was the consulting contracts. Now... I don't know the details of what those consultants do, but usually my uh, reaction to the word consulting has an air of kind of needless upper middle class pointlessness, like business consulting, you know, market remanaging and stuff that doesn't seem that productive. But in the construction realm, um, a lot of times consulting can save people money, even though it costs money because it has to do with making sure things work and evaluating materials and everything other cuts to the the upkeep and everything would mean that uh, the service would be worse because not as many repairs would be made which means people won't want to be taking the subway and uh, restricted bus lines so ridership will go down so it seems that we're in a, a bit of a down <laughs> at the present we're about to go into a big downward spiral if there's no savior to this budget crisis that the MTA is going for, going through. Now, uh, not to mention the human cost that the MTA has already suffered from the same Gothamist article, quote, aside from the fiscal crisis, the MTA's workforce has paid a staggering price during the pandemic. 131 of its workers have died of COVID-19 and 4,098 have tested positive for the coronavirus, end quote. Which is pretty rough. An unsexy savior for this MTA budget crisis could have been a program that received much attention a couple years ago when it was being developed and it ruffled feathers. I'm talking about congestive pricing. 
a decrease in ridership translates often to an increase in driving. So congestive pricing could have made up for much of the loss in MTA revenue. But of course, we don't have any happy endings right now. Uh, from a different Gothamist article, quote, the Trump administration was holding up approval of the congestion pricing plan, which was supposed to raise $15 billion to help rebuild and modernize the system starting in 2021, end quote. It has now been pushed back to 2022. They're holding it up under, uh, they haven't made a decision if it needs a certain environmental review um, or something like that, dragging their feet. So, seems like things aren't that great. Um, I'm saving a little bit of money by not riding the train, uh, but I've lost a considerably a lot more from uh, from other uh, effects of the pandemic and in other ways. And though I'm happy to keep cycling, um, I can't wait for the day where I not only ride the train again, but I also have somewhere else besides work to go on it. So that's my little review of of the, the budget crisis with the, the MTA. Wow. I, I, I titled it MTA, by the way, on, on my, my document instead of MTA. Nice. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point you made, Matt, about uh, saving money, not riding a train, but also spending more money because you're not. Yeah, that's definitely been something I've noticed. Like I used to buy, get the monthly Metro through my job, through the transit check, you know, and that's like over a hundred bucks, but that's to Mm -hmm. ride the subway everywhere, you know, but in the meantime, trying to get back from the grocery store with enough to last me for a while, I got to take an Uber, you know, so that definitely makes a difference. Yeah. But yeah, when I was on the train... Recently, but wasn't a lot of riders at all. So I can see the budgets being an issue. I feel like public transportation is one of those things where if the people that are making money hand over foot, like even during a pandemic, were properly taxed and it actually went towards things that are public goods, like it could be well run, it could be clean, it could be efficient and all of those things. So when these stories come up, I I sort of see it as like there's this planned neglect, like because it's something that people of all different or of many different economic classes and races depend on, it's okay to kind of let it go to shit. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things where I'm always baffled when I hear that like there's a crisis over such like an essential like utility and infrastructure thing over money, right? Because it's like, how is there not enough money to keep this going, right? Because ja- exactly what Jasmine said, like there there is enough money in the world like that exists that it is in excess to take care of this, whether it's extra taxes, whether it's just going towards the military and the police. Because if you like look at those numbers, they're staggering compared to what we like refuse to spend money on elsewhere. It's pretty yeah, wild. That, that's that's correct. In 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 the article, there was a section where they talked about someone asked uh, one of the I can't remember what what their title was, but one of the representatives, if instead of these austerity measures, if if they could, if they're just considering a wealth tax, like some something more uh, 
more direct, like instead of having to go this route when where you decrease service, you don't make repairs, you, you cut these corners, which essentially, you know, everyone knows that story. You lose money, <laughs> you know, later. Yeah, and across the board in this city too, like if you look at like, like just real estate prices, like there is enough money changing hands on a regular basis in this city. And the fact that something as essential as like as the subway is just being left to fall into disrepair and which is dangerous it's it's pretty wild yeah and it's also telling like this is an issue we've been talking about the mta i think since i started on the show and before like how you know there's all this money to put more police on the train to punish people i don't know if you all saw the footage of the uh police officer who attacked the homeless man on the subway like he dragged him off of the train and he kicked him and um there's footage of it it's it's a graphic video but it came out that that officer is not going to be disciplined you know so there's all these millions of dollars being pumped into further criminalizing and brutalizing poor people but there's all this rhetoric about oh but there's not enough money to actually improve the service and it's just so it's so transparent it's so dishonest it's disgusting and you know it's it's like you're deliberately starving things that we all need whether it's public transportation whether it's affordable housing whether it's um the hospitals that have been left to just go into disrepair or to close all of those things are being starved for the benefit of the one percent and then they Mm -hmm. turn around and sell you this lie that oh it's just not possible oh it's because it's like how are are you trying to blame the poor people that rely on the subway that can't take the subway anymore like we're the reason why the subway is going down i don't believe it well i think yeah when what's funny to me is um I've been th- I was thinking about this the other day, just like th- there's certain things that we do in America that's just really wasteful. Uh, I was thinking about when when I lived in Korea, they, there was like this little like heater that you would use to like heat up the water before a shower. Um, and so like you'd have to like think, you know, 20 minutes ahead uh, before you take a shower or whatever. And I was talking to my Korean friend about that. And I was like, I was like, why do you do this? This is so annoying. And he was like, what? Just like heat the water all the time? <laughs> like, so that you're like ready for a shower, like whenever. And I was like, oh yeah, that's, that's the thing. So like w- when we have these budget crises for these massive programs that do take an incredible amount of money, it's like we want to be frugal and austere in, in the ways we've already thought about, but they're really un creative and they're uh very um what's the word um uh for uh, when poor people pay more than rich people not a, not like a progressive tax system but a retro you know what it's I'm fucked up whatever the term is yeah and it's not yeah. only uncreative it's about like who's in power right like there's the the military and the the police force get those kinds of budgets because there's people in power like in those positions right people in the military and in government contracts like those are all intertwined like and it became 
extra apparent, I think during the Bush era with Cheney and everything, but, um, yeah, people make money off of that. Like, always follow the money. <laughs> Man, I, I wish, like, the military, like, since, like, it, it seems pretty impossible to, like, dissolve this incredibly, like, runaway train of, like, finances. Like, I wish it was just, like, a rule that was, like, all the time that you aren't spent, like, invading, like, oil um, thick countries, like, you just, like... The military, like, they just have to have normal jobs, you know? <laughs> like, instead of just, like, sitting around, like, I have a friend who's in the military, and he's just, like, out in the Mojave Desert, like, running these, like, kind of, like, drills or whatever. And it's like, okay, how about this? Like, you, like military engineers, whatever, how about, how about you just, like, work here and do the thing you're trained to do? And then when we decide to deploy you to go kill innocent people, just fine, whatever, do that. But, like, maybe we can just, like, get a little bit more bang for a buck out of this ridiculous contract or how about no don't do that ever uh yes i mean <laughs> i was i was oh, being man. a little bit sarcastic i believe yeah it's just yeah. it's very i don't know like personally it's like that's it's very real like people getting killed in that way so that's why i reacted well, that's all right, honestly, because these issues are pretty transparent. And I think, you know, something that stood out for me with the MTA at the beginning of the COVID stuff, they were saying the MTA will now go to cleaning the train twice a day uh, to protect New Yorkers. And I'm like, twice a day? Like, so there was no cleaning of trains before COVID. Um, I know I never got on a train to smell no fabuloso, but the reality is, you know, that wasn't a normal practice, you know, for all of these people for all of this time. Like, I think it's it's really fucked up that at the very least, keeping it sanitized and safe is not part of the protocol. Like it's something they had to implement, you know, and then finally shut it down to give it a deep clean. I'm still waiting on New York to freaking spe- uh, spray the streets like they were doing in Europe um, of the germ. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. But the the concept that they weren't cleaning the train that way and putting us all at risk for whatever, um, it just really reflects what the people in power think about the people in this city. You know, it's awful. Okay, well, I think it's time for a music break. What do you guys think? Mm-hmm. I all think right. so. Sounds good. So our first song for today is something kind of funky. I'm in a funky mood today. So we have Betty Davis with They Say I'm Different. We'll be right back. She spit it's nothing boogie Damn, oh, damn Spit on They say I'm different Cause I eat shit lens And I can't help it I was born and raised on them That's right, every morning After slop the hogs And they begin off Humping the jolly Sugar cane, 
Objection to the Rule, live on Radio Free Brooklyn. So that was Betty Davis with They Say I'm Different. And the next person up on the docket is Jasmine with National News. Okay, so um, I'm sure most of us have probably heard something or seen something related to what's going on in Portland. So I wanted to talk about that today. Um, this information is from an article written on The Guardian by Martin Pengelly, P-E-N-G-E-L-L-Y. So it's been over 50 nights straight that protesters have been out in the streets in Portland, um, Portland, Oregon, demanding police reform and calling out systemic racism following the police killing of George Floyd. Um, what's happening now that's been drawing a lot of attention is that there are now federal agents that have descended upon the city. Trump has sent in officers from agencies that operate under the DHS or the Department of Homeland Security to reinforce and in some cases replace local police to quote, protect property and government buildings. The, pro the president has been painting the protesters as being violent anarchists that Democrats can't control. He has said that he'll be ordering federal agents to go into more U.S. cities with Democratic mayors to curb violence and restore law and order. News outlets have confirmed that 150 federal agents are going to be sent to Chicago. Uh, New York City has also been mentioned um, on this list, as has um, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, I don't know about you all, but I've been seeing on Twitter and other social media footage of federal agents in camouflage gear and without identification, tear gassing protesters and holding them without due process. Eyewitnesses are saying that um, protesters have been taken away in unmarked vans. So one question some might have is, are the agents there to quell like actual violence? And some protests in Portland have involved fires being lit, some windows being smashed. And there are people that work for the Federal Protective Service, which is the DHS's security police division that claim they've had lasers shown into their eyes by protesters. However, local leaders in Portland have said that the crowds were getting progressively smaller before Trump sent the federal agents in. But after the, the agents came in, the crowd started to grow large again in the wake of the deployment. Peaceful events attract bigger crowds and local media report that for most people in Portland, life goes on as usual, even though like the, pandem the pandemic is happening. Um, the 
Portland's mayor, Ted Wheeler, has said that the federal agents have been making the situation worse. Um, this article came out two days ago, but Ted Wheeler, I believe just yesterday, was tear gassed himself by these agents. Um, Governor Kate Brown has filed a lawsuit looking to seek a restraining order. Constitutional law experts have said that the Trump administration risks precipitating a constitutional crisis by circumventing state and city governments and denying basic rights of assembly, free speech, and lawful arrest. Um, this bit of information comes from reporting done by NPR. Chad Wolf, who is the acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, has said that they will not retreat. He said, what is occurring in Portland in the early hours of every morning is not peaceful protesting. And he's claiming that individual protesters are organized and they have one mission in mind, to burn down or to cause extreme damage to the federal courthouse and to law enforcement officers. So even though we have local leaders that do not want these agents there, they've made that known, they're being public about it. He is saying that he does not care and is stating that their main mission is basically to protect property and I guess police officers that already have, you know, riot gear and all types of military grade weaponry. So mm -hmm. yeah. that's happening in Portland and it's going to be happening in other cities across the country very soon. Yeah, you said in, in, in the last sentence, um, the second last sentence about like, uh, they're there to protect uh, federal property, and that's their, that's their MO, or the, the, the greatest sin is, is to, um, to uh, attack property, I guess. It's very true. I mean, the thought that the Secret Service is basically alive and running and killing Americans for standing in the streets. That's where we at 2020, right? Mm -hmm. What was the uh, the division? Was it like homelands? What was it like a special thing? I'm sorry, was I not listening? Is it a the, special task yeah. force or? Yeah, yeah. the the, the agents are members of the. They're from different agencies that operate under the Department of Homeland Security. So it includes some people that work for like the Border Patrol and stuff. So there's, I don't know the names of all of the different agencies, but there's offices from different smaller ones that report under the Department of Homeland Security. Which brings up a good point, like that, you know, it's, I've brought it up on this show before, we've talked about it before, a lot of these tactics, they're not new in and of themselves, it's just who's being the victims of it now is considered more shocking, you know, because they've been doing things like this at the border, and to, you know, smaller groups of people within the country for a very long time. But a lot of the imagery out of Portland is of, you know, a lot of, you know, young, younger or like older white people. Like there's a wall of moms right now that are out, you know, asking for a stop to the violence. So I think seeing that um, so plainly is what's causing a lot of the visceral reaction right now. Yeah, certainly. Thank you for doing that story, Jasmine, because it's been on my mind <laughs> like all week. It's horrifying. And and you're right, though. It isn't new. Um, but what what's, I think, particularly scary about it is just the the truly 
blatant like you're talking about a constitutional crisis like coming but it really feels like it's here already and I mean it has been ever since like the Republicans refused to impeach Trump even though there was ample evidence and all of that but it's just it's it's scary it's scary that there's a federal government who refuses to acknowledge independent states rights to not have military intervention essentially or what feels like that um on the ground and and I was also seeing a bunch of stuff online about you know like all these the NRA arguments about having you know the right to they want to have all their guns to make sure they can stand up to the federal government overstepping and it's like no well and they saw this one that was like president of the NRA forgot to enter like to intercede when the federal government overstepped or something like that oh yeah yeah it's wild it's scary it's scary <laughs> and everyone we all need to be really hyper vigilant right now of what's going on yeah. I mean, I, I do think that for one, one thing that is heartening is to see so many people, like the fact that these agents came out to crush these protests that were getting smaller because people get tired of coming out and seeing it backfire and having more people come out is, I think, a good thing. Um, so hopefully there's more people that see just how transparently evil <laughs> these forces are um and it's i wish it weren't the case that it sometimes takes things reaching out to a larger demographic for more people to care about it but if that's what it takes at least it's happening now and more people are waking up and making a decision to actually stand up and do something the um the daily just covered this and they the the person they were interviewing was making the argument that uh, Trump did this as a campaign thing uh, because it doesn't really matter if it works or not. If it gets people to stop coming, it still is the image of, uh, you know, people in uniforms attacking people that uh, his demographics don't like. And my girlfriend just got a letter uh, from the IRS and she's um, she's in Massachusetts right now, uh, kind of stuck there doing this work study thing. And I was like, you got a letter from the IRS. And she's like, oh, shit, I'm being audited. And I was like, well, I don't know. She was like, open it up. And so I opened it up. And it was a nothing letter. It was, it was just said from the White House. And it was just like a letter from Trump saying, like, I hope you enjoyed the stimulus money you got that I signed off on. Like, <laughs> and, Oh, my God. Like, that's all it said. Oh I mean, it was, it was about three paragraphs. Didn't offer any new information. Just saying, like, remind, just associating... White House and his signature with the money from the stimulus money. And yeah, I've been seeing people say that. Like, this, it, it's definitely an example of how two you can have two different people look at the exact same thing and have completely opposite reactions because we read that and think how transparent and ridiculous. But there's definitely mm -hmm. people that are like, hell yeah, like my president sent me money. I'm so happy. Right. Yeah. And I, I was seeing something today, too, like on that same train about, you know, uh, the Congress is trying to figure out the next stimulus package for the pandemic. And Trump is the administration's backing down like they were they were like all in on this payroll tax cut. 
on the platform of, you know, like getting money into people's pockets. Whereas like those taxes go to pay for like Medicare and things like that, like go to pay for essential services for people. And it's just like, it's very, it's transparent about whose money is really being cared about, but like it's played off like, Oh, here's $1,200 for you while these tax cuts are putting thousands and thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars into like millionaires and billionaires pockets. And it's, yeah, it's crazy. Maybe not transparent enough, though. I don't know. <laughs> it's it's just bad. And, you know, there's all these people that hide behind, like, they try to camouflage their bigotry and their hate behind states' rights and all this other shit. And here you have a very clear example of states saying, we do not want you here. We do not need you here. Go away. But somehow those same people don't have a problem with this overreach. Because it's be it. like that's the that's the excuse, but it's hiding something else. The point is, as long as you're hurting who I think deserves to be hurt, I could give a damn about these quote unquote principles or whatever. Yeah, that that was really weird and surreal. Hearing the audio of the mate, I think it was the mayor, almost pleading like send you're not wanted here like these troops like we don't need you we don't want you here please leave and like it was just it just felt really odd because it it was almost just like go away this is not good yeah and what how long ago was it that um that cotton person wrote uh an op-ed in the new york times saying send in the national guard it wasn't that long ago, but it caused a big firestorm because it's like, who, what the fuck? It's like you're encouraging like the government to come in and oppress people for exercising their First Amendment rights. I mean, this is a national story, but look at what just happened at Abolition Plaza in New York with the police coming along, shutting down, you know, people that are getting together, creating resources for each other, like providing food and shelter to homeless people and you have the NYPD coming out like an army to destroy it you know it's like what it's yeah I mean it's it's a disease and it's just spreading like wildfire right now like the other pandemic Mm, yeah except for wildfire like has a purpose (laughs) wildfires can be part of an ecosystem. Like, I just imagine us going into the election with like all of these things happening, like things burning, ISIS on the street, people protesting. Like I could just like it's a complete revolution that's that's happening right now. And um, the story is really disheartening to me because I feel like it's we're only headed for it getting worse. You know, this is a reason for people to protest even more. You know, it's just going to bring more people out to the street to protest what's happening right now. And it's just a conundrum that's going to circle around itself. You know what I mean? Was was there, yeah, Teresa, what you said about so many things going on, uh, a lot of people are losing hope. I'm not sure I've had, like, too much hope in the way things have been going for, for quite some time. W- were any of you... Um, more idealistic or like had more faith in, in like the systems as they say um, of, of government or like how things are supposed to work. Like ever. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying cause I'm kind of wondering cause I've always kind of been like, a, yeah, I don't, I don't think I ever, I don't, yeah. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> I think, I think I was raised by people with a healthy amount of skepticism. I think, um, 
and also I mean honestly like you know you know being like Jewish and having family that kind of got chased out of foreign countries uh in Europe getting chased out of Europe like I think I just was born with like a healthy skepticism of the federal government does that make (laughs) sense just like Mm -hmm. just like a health like you know just always be aware that there's people in power that aren't necessarily looking out for your best interest um and also or like you have to be hyper vigilant I guess to make sure that those things don't go out of out of control always you know keep your eye on who's making money too I was sort of raised with that and I think the older I get the more I see it firsthand too um but yeah I don't know what do you guys think I would say no like I never had confidence or faith like in the powers that be it was more a sense of like knowing how bad things already are but hoping that they don't get worse but not from a not from a place of actual optimism or hope it's just not wanting to experience certain things um myself but that's actually been something that's uh I've found extremely frustrating is it's very annoying and it gets under my skin to be honest like when people act like so shocked by things that are not new but it's shocking to them because it's happening to people basically that they never thought that it was supposed to happen to like there's almost a sense of there's always like a canary in the coal mine right there's always certain groups of people where it's just taken for granted that bad shit happens to them and that that's just the way it is. But then as soon as the circle of who's impacted by it gets wider and wider and starts to become like this whirlpool that ensnares too many of the wrong type of people, then suddenly a lot of people open their eyes to how bad things are in this country and how bad this country has been to people abroad. So, yeah, it's like I, I think it's a net good that more people are waking up, but I'm just speaking for myself. It's extremely frustrating that it takes for things to get to this point. Um, far as me, I think I've been partially hopeful at times just because over my life, there's been ups and downs. Um, I feel like I have to be hopeful that, you know, common sense will prevail at the end of the day. Um, am I surprised when things happen underneath this climate and what we've been seeing as of, forever honestly uh no i'm not surprised um but that doesn't take away you know the pain and the sting of it especially when you're trying you know with your whole heart to fight against oppression and you know bring resistance and create opportunities for people to have a voice um it does get taxing it does get overwhelming and i think that you know while i'm do i expect things to get better under this no absolutely not but i am hopeful that you know, we can prevail as people, that the people on the ground that's trying to make sense out of this will be able to overcome this. I do believe that. Um, mm. It's just, you know, because there are have been moments historically where people have suffered over and over again and, and slow strides have been made, you know, slow strides. So I feel like we're at the beginning of something different. Um, I'm not exactly sure how it will roll out. Um We're seeing it every day. I definitely think it'll get worse before it gets better. But I do feel that during this time, you know, being mindful that this shit is going in this direction, it almost prepares us to be more protective with our families, ourselves, our agency, Um, be more prepared for what's going to be out there, you know, because this is definitely something different than what we've experienced 
just last year around this time, you know? So I guess that's my perspective. I have to have some level of hope, but, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, it gets harder every day. Let's just say that. Yeah. Well, I mean, th- things, things have been so fucked up for so long that it, it's actually not too hard to say that things are getting better because they are objectively like, you know, like, but that doesn't mean things are great, <laughs> you know? Absolutely not. Hmm. Absolutely not. All right. Are we good? Any final thoughts on the story? Thank you so much, Jasmine. Definitely um, something we need to have a round table discussion about as we move into this this different uh, level. You're uh, very welcome. Right, right now. Yeah. Right. Thank you for the bad fucked up news. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's that's, that's what we got to do. You yeah. That's what we got to do, right? Something. No, I'm not blaming you. I'm just saying sometimes it gets like that, right? Like not just you, all these stories sometimes yeah. um, can be that way. But That's why we added the good Right, news exactly. We need but we have them. to talk about these things. We have yeah. to talk about them. And we have and, to bring them know, to light for sure. I mean, it's the story of uh, people having a prolonged protest for human rights, you know? So like, it, it's all kind of mixed in there, in there all together. Yeah, solidarity to the people in Portland and everybody around the country, really, who is out there in the street actually doing the work. Like, we appreciate you. We see what what, what you're doing, and we need you right now. So let's mm. hope, you know, I'm not a praying person, but let's hope and put all our positive energy towards the people doing this work in the midst of a pandemic, that they all make it through and that we do see some kind of positive change from this. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Uh, we have a. Well, I know. Could, could we have Jasmine do an, an introduction for Sarah's piece? Because I don't think many of us know what it's going to be on. Sure. Are you up for that, Jasmine? I mean, I, I guess so. <laughs> so <laughs> what, what did she tell next, you that the, the piece was? The next, the next um, story is coming from Sarah Weck, who couldn't be with us today, unfortunately. And I believe her segment is going to be about unemployment stats in the U.S. So here's Sarah. Hey, everyone. It's Sarah. I'm back with another national story this week on unemployment. The sources for this are are The Guardian, Forbes, Newsweek, CNBC, and The New York Times. So we need to talk about unemployment. I know this has been old news since COVID started, but according to The Guardian, the number of Americans filing for unemployment benefits last week rose again to 1.4 million after four months of falls. These numbers are coming in just as Congress debates extending the $600 benefit for unemployed workers. Democratic Senator Rob Wyden has pushed for an extension of the full $600 benefit until the crisis ends, but many Republicans argue that pushing it further will incentivize people to remain unemployed. The 1.4 million Americans filing for these benefits, however, may disagree with this, especially as shutdowns in California and Arizona continue to leave more people jobless. Trump has indicated that an order may be imminent to drop benefits 70%, which is hugely problematic as this leaves 16 million people in the dust to cover their rent and mortgage payments. Wendy Edelberg was interviewed by Newsweek and predicts a two-phase housing crisis. The first, a longer-term problem of oversaturation in the housing market, and the, the, the second, a more immediate eviction crisis facing renters, which is something that I think everyone in New York is familiar with and is finding their own way to deal with. A Newsweek 
Newsweek states that a 10% drop in rent collections could fall within a landlord's debt cover ratio, meaning the person could still pay the mortgage. But in areas like Las Vegas, where unemployment surpassed 25% in May, more than double the national average, entire buildings could have large numbers of renters unable to pay their rent. Congress is now faced with the necessity of acting quickly to prevent a long-term crisis. The unemployment rates are also wildly uneven. The positive June trends of recovery showed the unemployment rate going down to 11% with 5 million jobs added to the economy. However, in July, those numbers are now irrelevant in the face of mounting unemployment claims, and June's recovery was not even, with Black and Latinx workers disproportionately economically affected by the pandemic. Mary Daly, president of the Federal Reserve Bank in San Francisco, pointed out in a Forbes article that these structural inequities have always existed, but COVID has made it worse. Declining tax revenues on state and city levels is leading to budget cuts, which could point to impending job losses in the public sector, including school budgets, which would affect Black workers more, particularly Black women workers. Congress continues to debate what the next COVID relief bill will look like, and I hope that there is a push for focusing on systemic inequality because it is critical to repairing the losses that people of color and low-income families are experiencing, which outweighs that of white people and those with bachelor degrees after the pandemic. According to CNBC, Republicans want the package to cost roughly $1 trillion. Nancy Pelosi has called that level of spending insufficient to address the health and economic crisis created by the pandemic. So it'll be interesting to see what Congress does with the relief package. Um, I just hope that they focus on systemic inequality and that we get at least a slight extension of the relief that people have been collecting for the past few months. Um, Yeah, I'll just keep you updated on this story and I will see you guys next week. Thank you so much, Sarah, for that story. That was awesome. We're going to take another music break. Up next is Jill Scott with Gimme. We'll be right back. Give it to me, give it to me, give me, give it to me, give it to me, give me, give it to 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 me, give it to
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, live on Radio Free Brooklyn. And up next is the global news, as Matt referred to it earlier today um, on the show. So I got this story from Al Jazeera, and it is quite an interesting thought. So here we go. So the UK has unveiled the details of a plan to offer an estimated 3 million people in Hong Kong a route to citizenship. In a briefing paper released on Wednesday, Secretary Priti Patel said that people with British national, people with British nationals overseas or BNO status, a type of nationality created when Hong Kong was released to the Chinese rule in 1997, would be able to apply for the program from January of next year. Hong Kong was a British colony for more than 100 years until it returned to Chinese rule under the so-called one country, two systems framework, which afforded the territory substantial autonomy and guaranteed people of the territory rights and freedoms on the mainland for at least 50 years. So referring to China's imposition of the new national security law on Hong Kong, uh, Patel stated, now that China through its actions has changed circumstances uh, for British national citizens and finds us, uh, that find themselves there, it is right that we change the entitlements which are no which are attached to this BNO status. The UK said that the security law contravenes the promises that were laid out in the Sino-British Joint Declaration of 1984. The policy statement said that changes to migration for people from Hong Kong were a reflection of unprecedented circumstances in the territory and Britain's unique obligations, quote it, um, was to those BNO uh, those with BNO status. So to apply for this visa. They will get it for five years, after which, providing they can support themselves financially and have not committed any crimes, they can apply for permanent residence. And then after that, um, after that, shortly for citizenship, they will not need to meet any income requirements, have a job prior to arrival or seek permissions to work or study. They will still have to pay for the visas um, and the fee hasn't been decided yet. But all the and they will also have to pay for the subsequent applications for the settlement and citizenship, and they are not eligible for any social security payments. The policy statement said it was also open to accepting those in need of travel before January. So China has condemned these actions as a breach of international law and interference into its internal affairs. The paper triggered a swift condemnation from China's embassy in London, which is said to move a mounted which said that the move amounted to interference in China's international affairs and internal affairs, and they demand effective countermeasures. The Chinese side is also urging the UK side to recognize the fact that Hong Kong is a part of China now and has the right and objective understanding of the national security law for Hong Kong. So they're demanding that it immediately correct these mistakes and stop interfering into Hong Kong affairs and Chinese affairs. So this is um, interesting. Uh, we don't really see a lot of sort of uh, diplomacy happening right now, especially under the pandemic um, and people really opening up their borders to anyone. But I do think that this is, um, you know, definitely a change of, of speed um, offering these, these citizens a chance to return to the UK. What do you guys think about this? Yeah, it, it, I, I'm hoping it's not part of I don't know. It's hard because China's doing some fairly questionable things to put it euphemistically. But earlier this week, uh, Britain or the UK also uh, decided to break some contracts with Huawei. I believe the I think mm -hmm. that whole cell phone uh, arrangement. And so, I mean, I would like to just think of it as like 
what they did right now is just a, a more pure action of just like, oh, you know, we were a colonizing force in that era of the world. We owe these people like something. But hopefully it's not just part of a larger, just like anti-China um, thing that might make things harder to work together with this big, you know, kind of giant force that nobody really knows how to deal with um, China and all you, of their... What's that? I was just going to say, do you think that they are imposing on Chinese internal affairs or like what, what are your thoughts on that? No, I, I don't think that. I, I'm just, I'm nervous about the, um, I'm nervous about World War Three. <laughs> I'm nervous <laughs> about the UK uh, and and America taking these, like developing like these hard lines to China because China's yeah. big and they're off to the Uyghurs and everything. I think if World War Three is going to happen, the US is going to be <laughs> like a, you know, a what's the word like a instigator or something just just because of the lack of diplomacy for example yeah. that we've seen we saw at the very beginning of this year for example exactly but and we um, were reporting yeah. on that as well well yeah um i mean it's interesting because you know while it is a chinese part of china like there were very specific rules in place about how long Hong Kong could retain its independence or semi-independence for and china just decided that they were going to, you know, ignore that or just, yeah, that you know, the new security the law directly violates yeah. that. Yeah. So, you know, it's not it's not like cut and dry by any means, even though China wants it to be seen like that. Yeah, not that like China would like back down. <laughs> it's something I definitely want to re- do more reading up on um, because there are a lot of conflicting viewpoints and the story that you're talking about Teresa I'm not sure if I missed it but are these like people that are they're people that have dual citizenship or something like they're people that are born and raised in Hong Kong now have the ability to leave and go to the UK what is specifically uh, it says the article says people with British nationals, so maybe their families and then BNO status which is a type of nationality that was created um, specifically for Hong Kong when it was returned to the Chinese. Okay. So, and that was in 1997 when right. that happened. Okay, so that's, is that only a subset of people in Hong Kong or that's pretty much anybody in Hong Kong has that status because it was a formal con- former colony? I think it's probably a, a set group of people from that specific time frame. Uh, you think of people that's, you know, 1997 was, you know, over 10, over 20 years, almost 20 years or more. So when you think about it like that, it's probably affecting a certain demographic or a certain group of people during, that was, you know, alive during that time. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to do a lot more reading up on it. As you said, it was from Al Jazeera. Yes. And there was another one, um, I believe, on BBC. But this one specifically was just... Um, yeah, it was from Al Jazeera. But I think it's an interesting way to think about this because that the, the, the clause that she's speaking on was in 1984. And so it's, it literally said it protected people for 50 years. So it's kind of just, you know, that 50 years didn't happen yet. So it's kind of a very specific group of people who are given um, this opportunity, but definitely yeah. more to look at. And it's interesting to just kind of see, you know, these big, nation states, if you will, taking movements towards China in such like a grand way um, right now. 
I don't know. It's just a lot of that going on, but this is very specific to the people there. Um, and some, most of the time we hear about the business. So. All right. And I, we're almost out of time. So I think real fast, I'm going to throw out, <laughs> I'm going to throw in that good news story. Does that sound good? Yeah, go, go for it. it. Okay. All right. So uh, the real fast good news for today is that uh, if you all remember, when, uh, we interviewed Emily Gallagher uh, back in April on her race for uh, New York State Assembly for District 50, which includes Greenpoint, Williamsburg, and Clinton Hill, and she won her race. So big congratulations to Emily. Um, you can hear that episode on our uh, RadioFreeBrooklyn.com page, iTunes, and now on Spotify because our show is now on Spotify. Um, and yeah, so after an extended period of ballot counting post election on June 23rd, she's officially been declared the winner of her race against a 46 year incumbent, Joe Lentil. Um, she posted a message on her Instagram account at EM for letter number four assembly. Uh, this is yesterday as of today. So that was July 22nd. And she wrote this. Um, I can't believe I am writing this, but it's official. We won. This was a collective and truly grassroots campaign powered by a deep love for North Brooklyn and a desire to make it better. Thank you so much for believing in me against all the odds. Um, She went on to say later in the post that, uh, to be honest, I did not expect to win, but I ran anyway. I ran because I care about this community. I care about democracy, and I think it's worth it to take big risks and to dream impossible dreams. Um, and then she finally said that, um, she was really very magnanimous about her opponent that she beat. She said, I also want to express my gratitude and congratulations to assembly member Lentall on his decades of service. Joe lives, leaves behind him a terrific legacy of legislation on many important issues and stood with the community many times in important battles. Um, but anyway, I'm personally really excited to see what she does and congratulations to Ooh. Emily Gallagher. Congratulations, Emily. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. And it's local, something that's local. Like it, I think it's good to remember like what changes you can enact on like in your own community. Like you might not feel like you can do much on the larger scheme of things, but she was able to do something within her grasp. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. That's beautiful. Definitely. All right. So I guess that's it for this week. It's time to wrap up. We'd like to thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on the Radio Free Brooklyn website or app or anywhere else where you can find Apple or iPad. I- iPad. Oh, <laughs> you know what I'm trying to and say. And Spotify. And Spotify. You can find us there with all your other extremely wonderful podcasts. Make sure you tune in next week and Stay locked in for Radio Free Brooklyn for more independent Brooklyn media. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.